Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, sponsored by EarthX, the world's largest environmental experience, and also sponsored by Natural Awakenings Magazine. Live your healthiest life on a healthier planet. Now, here's your host, Bernice Butler. Welcome to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio today. We're now in our third season, and we remain perhaps more excited than ever to continue to help you explore and understand that unbreakable relationship between your health and the health of the planet. Here, we look at the hottest topics related to our environment and its sustainability and how they affect your health and wellness. Here, issues like climate change, plastic pollution, extreme weather events, and others will meet up with everyday impacts like allergies and asthma, digestive issues, gut health, cancers, lung and heart issues, and more. So listen in today as we interview experts for today's show on extreme weather events. And today we're going to focus on hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, and flooding. Hurricanes' environmental effects go beyond killing fish. They include strong winds, mainly, and flooding. And these can uproot plants and kill land animals, as well as devastating natural areas. Hurricanes also destroy energy and chemical production facilities, gas stations, other businesses, causing the release of toxic chemicals and pollutants into our environment. Hurricanes have also been known to spread invasive plants and animals. Wind and water can move exotic plants to new locations, and invasive fish that were concentrated in a small area can ride the floods to new locations and increase their range. Hurricanes have also destroyed breeding facilities of exotic species like Burmese pythons that are in South Florida allowing the animals to escape and become established in the wild. Hurricanes, of course, do generate those very strong winds that can cause tree loss, or they can completely defoliate forest canopies and cause dramatic structural changes in wooded ecosystems. Animals can either be killed by hurricanes or impacted indirectly through changes in their habitat and the food availability that's caused by the high winds, by the storm surge, and the intense rainfall. If enough damage is done, many nesting sites and food sources for birds and mammals are also destroyed. And even if animals are able to escape injury from a hurricane, they are often forced into environments that they may not be used to, and therefore they become disoriented. Hurricanes affect people's lives because they can do so much damage. Winds can damage houses, trees, and any outdoor properties. And if the hurricane doesn't destroy where people live, then the major flooding after and perhaps during the hurricane probably will. When homes are destroyed, people may have to rebuild whole towns as well as their own homes. And hurricanes can be among the most devastating natural disasters. According to the U.S. Geological Service's Coastal and Marine Geology Program, hurricanes account for two-thirds of property loss nationwide, and that's not even getting into the global cost. Hurricane Harvey dumped an estimated 27 trillion gallons of rain over Texas and Louisiana during a six-day period, and it set a record for the most rainfall ever 
from a tropical storm in the U.S., and that's ever. And that was approximately 51 inches. And then on Harvey's Hills came Hurricane Irma, which wreaked havoc across the Caribbean and into Florida and the southeast. And then Hurricane Maria, which caused nearly everyone in Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Isles to lose power for weeks. And endangered species are especially vulnerable when their habitat is destroyed by some of the vestiges of hurricanes. Beaches move and change shape due to storm surges. Riverbanks erode during flash flood events. And in the urban landscape, natural disasters can impact historic structures, leading to the need for restoration and preservation work. And infrastructure, such as bridges, roads, transmission lines, and oil and gas pipelines may need new permits, assessment, and repair, or even just total rebuilding. Hurricanes often lead to an increase in fish kills, as we mentioned, and that's due to changes in the salinity of the water in which those fish live. It is due to strandings from flooding. And when oxygen levels in the water get too low, the fish are unable to obtain the required amount of oxygen that they need for their metabolism. And then there's the long periods of cloudy days that are caused by hurricanes that prevent the photosynthesis that's needed by fish to get the proper oxygen level. Although it's hard to see the silver lining or even to conceive of a silver lining at all with hurricanes, they actually can play a necessary role in keeping the Earth's atmosphere balanced. Hurricanes help to move heat from the warm equatorial regions towards the cold polar region. Hurricanes also provide 20 to 25% of rainfall in certain areas of the world. And then there's the tornadoes. And the differences in hurricanes and tornadoes are primarily in scale. And even though the winds from the strongest tornadoes far exceed that from the strongest hurricanes, hurricanes typically cause more damage individually over a season and over far bigger areas. But economically, tornadoes cause about a tenth as much damage per year on average as hurricanes do. Hurricanes tend to cause more much more overall destruction than tornadoes because of their much larger size, their longer duration, and their greater variety of ways to damage property. The destructive core of hurricanes can be tens of miles across. Again, it can last many hours and damage to structures through storm surge and rainfall caused by flooding, as well as from the wind. And the tornadoes, in contrast, tend to be a few hundred yards in diameter, last for a few minutes, and they primarily cause damage from their extreme winds as opposed to water. When tornadoes touch down, we tend to brace ourselves, especially here in Texas, for news of property damage, for injuries, and loss of life. But the high-speed wind storms wreak environmental havoc as well. They can cut through massive swaths of forest, destroying trees and wildlife habitat, and opening up opportunities for invasive species to gain ground similar as hurricanes do. Rolling cars, flying rooftops, immense chaos, and uprooted trees triggered by it is what we envision. And as we mentioned, the effects of tornadoes on the environment are devastating. From destroying properties 
wildlife, plants, and at times taking people's lives. Tornadoes, again, cover a fairly smaller area when compared to severe winter storms or hurricanes, but the damage is normally much more rootless. Tornadoes are some of nature's most violent storms. It is the violent revolving column of air coming from a thunderstorm down to earth. The thunderstorm clouds from the tornadoes is mostly what causes the problem. When warm, they form in a short time and wet air rises. As this occurs, the cool air compresses in a big old cumulus cloud. And just like giving fire its food or fuel, more rising heated air builds and the cloud becomes larger and larger. And in the long run, the water in the cloud falls back to the earth as rain. And when this happens, some of the cooler air comes down with it, thereby causing this natural disaster that emerges to what we see as a rotating funnel-shaped cloud with winds that can be up to 300 miles per hour. And this is about five times as fast as a vehicle driving down the highway, if you can imagine that. And their travel routes are unpredictable and indiscriminate, and they work like a huge floor cleaner picking up everything in their path. When tornadoes touch the ground, they can cause damage in areas from 50 miles long and one mile wide. And on the average, about 1,000 tornadoes happen each year in America. The tornado's effect depends on its strength, a weak tornado causes small damage to property, while a stronger one can destroy a large part of an affected city. A lot of thunderstorms happen, but a thunderstorm that destroys the most is the tornado. The effect of tornadoes on the environment includes pollution, environmental contamination, injuries and loss of life, as we talked about, household hazardous waste, economic loss, destruction of vegetation, flash flooding, Effects on the ecosystem, even asbestos debris from roofs and other things, forest fires, psychological effects, and lightning. These negative effects have more tornadoes, have become much more of a destructive force in nature. And while some people may want to debate that there are some positive effects of tornadoes, like helping in pollination, there's certainly no doubt about the fact that the positive side has been overshadowed by the many negative effects of tornadoes on the environment. And all of this causes flooding, which other than getting hit or killed by debris or something falling on you, is mainly responsible for many of the health impacts of hurricanes, tornadoes, and storming. We're going to go to break now, and on the other side of that break, we'll be ready to jump in with our two guests who will make us much smarter about all of this. Thank you. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on extreme weather events, focusing on hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, and flooding. And here to help us unpack some of this and help to understand some of this today are two experts. Today we have with us Laura Lightbody. Laura directs the Pew Charitable Trust Flood Prepared Communities Initiative, which is aimed at reducing the impact 
of flood-related disasters on taxpayers, communities, and the environment by reforming federal and state flood and disaster policies. Laura's work has supported the passage of significant reforms that include securing historical levels of mitigation funding and improving rebuilding requirements for federal buildings and infrastructure. Prior to joining Pew, Laura was a vice president at a consulting firm where her advocacy work influenced major legislation related to Hurricane Sandy disaster relief, the Deepwater Horizon spill, toxic chemical management reform, and the American Innovation and Competitiveness Act. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me. That sounds great. Thank you. Our other guest is Shanna Udvardi. Shanna is a climate resilience analyst with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and they are our good friends. In fact, we had a guest, Christy Dahl, there with us last week. Shanna conducts research and policy analysis to help inform and build support to increase resilience to climate change impacts. Prior to joining the Union of Concerned Scientists, Shanna provided consulting services on climate adaptation and flood risk management policy. She was also the Climate Adaptation Policy Analyst at the Center for Clean Air Policy, Director of Flood Management Policy for the American Rivers and Water Program Manager at the Georgia Conservancy. Shanna also worked at the Smithsonian Institute, monitoring and assessment of biodiversity program, and was a Peace Corps volunteer in Nicaragua. Shannon is also a certified floodplain manager. Ladies, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. We want to start our questioning with Shanna. If you can help our audience understand the difference between a hurricane and a heavy storm and how are they caused? Well, you can think of hurricanes as just a much more extreme and stronger uh, tropical storm. So what makes a hurricane a hurricane is the uh, wind strength. So we, we have them rated from Category 1 to Category 5, and if, if the wind speed is over 74 miles per hour and above, then it makes it a hurricane. And with climate change, what we're finding is we're seeing more um, expanses of warmer water, and that's increasing the, the amount of evaporation going into warmer air, and we're seeing even stronger uh, hurricanes uh, that are lasting longer or slowing down. So that's what happened in Hurricane Harvey, where the hurricane just sat there for so long. So there was a lot of rainfall uh, in, a, in a short period of time, relatively speaking. Yeah, I hear our weatherman, he warns when they're slow, they're going to be more dangerous or worse because they're just sitting there dumping all of that rain. Is there any such animal or tool that measures hurricanes or has a way to perhaps predict the amount of water that the hurricane's going to dump? Sure. Well, we can be thankful to our federal agency, the National Atmospheric and Oceanic Administration, or NOAA, which you've heard of, I'm sure. Um, NOAA's been doing a lot of great work on uh, measuring and, and modeling and projecting the different amounts of rainfall. And in fact, uh, for the Hurricane Harvey, they actually had to create a whole new color because of the amount of rainfall expected to fall um, during that hurricane. And that's interesting because they generally predict when we as citizens hear about it, it's, it's the category uh, and then the amount of wind that's going to break. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to waters. And it seems to me as of late, as of recent years, it's been water that's been a lot of the problem. Yes, it's, it's been water that's, and you know, part of the problem in Houston is, is that it's so flat. So it's very hard for uh, the Houston area to absorb all of that water at one time. In addition to that, there's been a ton of development. So when you've got the mix of development on flat land, there's really nowhere for the water to go. And that seems to be one of the biggest problems as it relates to to human impact and health is the flooding. Again, that's if they don't get killed by flying debris or something crashing in on us. What is the scientific definition of flooding? There are three basic uh, categories of flooding. So we can think of the riverine flooding, which you hear a lot about um, in the spring season with the upper Mississippi and lower Mississippi River in in particular. Um, And then there's the um, surface flooding or what we can think about with flash floods out in the uh, southwest. We've got a lot of water rushing down on flat, dry land. And then you can think about also just urban flooding, right? You can get flooding on uh, surfaces from rainfall in urban areas, which is a huge problem right now, and then also in rural areas. The third category is tidal flooding, and that you see a lot of during these tropical storms and hurricanes where you've got water and storm surge coming in together due to tidal flooding. And I'll ask this question of both you and Laura, and that is the flooding that we see in places like Miami Beach. And the other day I ran across an article of some flooding. It was either in Seattle or Portland when there wasn't a drop of rain. Is that technically considered flooding or do y'all call that something else? Oh, definitely. That is flooding. It's what we call sunny day flooding. And that's due to sea level rise. So what's happening in Miami is that you're getting this flooding that's not even next to the coast. And it's part of what uh, the substrate is or what Miami is built on, which is very porous limestone substrate. So that when you've got high water levels due to tidal flooding, high tides, that's high tides, this water, the seawater goes into the substrate and you see these pockets of flooding way, way from the coast. So, um, Areas like Hialeah have been struggling with this kind of seawater tidal flooding on sunny days. And that's, again, due to uh, rising seas due to sea level rise. Um, We've been seeing uh, increases in rising tides over the last uh, two decades or so. And I believe that that's happening in other places as well as the coastal community of Miami and Miami Beach. It's really sad, and people are struggling with this across uh, the different coasts. It's different in each places, but um, some places are seeing it sooner because they're at a lower level and land is sinking or there's subsidence. And so you can see it in, you know, even places like Cape Cod where they're struggling with their sewer systems, the septic systems. That's also a case in coastal Florida as well. Indeed. And Laura, I know that you work in a number of communities. Can you tell us about some of the regional communities that are being severely impacted by flooding? Because there's a tendency to think that the hurricanes are in coastal communities and that's the only thing that you see. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because one of our purposes here at Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio is to have people understand how all of this affects all of us. 
Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because we do tend to gravitate towards the headlines around flooding, which tend to be these big hurricane events that um, Shauna was speaking about. But what we know is actually inland communities are most frequently impacted by flood events. We have, you know, rivers that run throughout the entire country. Um, and so you have, you know, everywhere from Milwaukee all the way down the Mississippi River and at, between each coast that are impacted by flooding. Flooding is, uh, as we know, has impacted all 50 states over the past 10 decades, uh, over the past decade. And it is the most common and costly natural disaster uh, for our country. And we just have two minutes to go before we go to break, Laura, but I want to stay with you. You mentioned a type of flooding that's happening in Washington. Can you explain that a little bit more? Right. In the state of Washington right now, they're experiencing flooding. Um, and, and, you know, this really builds upon a year of, of flooding that we have seen, this entire country has experienced um, from coast to coast. And it, it seems to not be stopping. And as we enter sort of this cold season uh, where we don't tend to think of floods, uh, we actually do uh, experience flooding, particularly after snowmelt. So some of these states, again, we don't think of flooding in Colorado and Michigan and Wisconsin, right? Um, but these are some of the states that are actually about to enter their kind of wettest season coming off of a heavy winter. So February, um, March, April, when we start to see really, really um dense spring flooding happening in those states. How are other areas or are other areas affected by, say, the flooding that happens and its reasons for happening in Colorado or Washington? It is. You know, all of the river systems in this country are connected to each other. Even a, a community, one community upstream impacts the community downstream. Um, and that's where development really comes into play, right? So if you're building um, a new community, you really need to think about how does this impact the water flow? We're putting new concrete into potentially what used to be a green open space. And we need to be thinking about the community needs to be thinking about how does that impact the community downstream? Because there can be very serious impacts. That new community may be just, just okay. Um, but that community downstream may now have a really big flood problem. Indeed. Thank you. And we're going to go to break now, but I want to continue some of this conversation on the other side of the break so folks can see just how interconnected it is. And my favorite question is, why should people care? And this helps us get to that. We'll be back on the other side of the break with our guest, Shanna Udvardi with the Union of Concerned Scientists and Laura Lightbody with the Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you, ladies. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio to today's show on extreme weather events, looking at hurricane storms, tornadoes, and flooding. And we are back with Shanna Yudvardi from the Union of Concerned Scientists and Laura Lightbody with the Pew Charitable Trust, and they are making us much smarter. Now, before the break, Laura was telling us about flooding in various parts of the country. And even though we're not talking about it a lot or addressing it today, the same things that we talk about here today are happening. You can pick them up and sit them on various other 
continents and countries. They're happening all over the world. And just because we don't talk about them globally doesn't mean they're happening. But I want to go back to Laura, as you were telling us about some of these regional impacts. Can you tell us what are some of perhaps the unintended or unknown health impacts of flooding, and then tell us about some of the work that you do with the Pew Flood Prepared Communities Project. Yeah, one of the things we know about flooding is that it really does impact the entire community, right? We're not we're not talking about um, kind of small basement flooding when we talk about flooding, right? We're talking about a an entire community system and the health of that community and the resiliency of that community. So that starts with the impact to livelihoods, right? School systems down, uh, you're unable to drop your kids off to childcare, you're unable to get to work. That's sort of the kind of grind and nuisance of these big events, but sort of larger than that is the health of a community and the ability of that community to really bounce back is what we mean when we talk about resiliency. And that means thinking about building back communities and homes in a way that are um, perhaps more resilient, more kind of stronger to flooding, but also maybe in a different location, right? Part of the reason that we're seeing so much flooding today and so much flood impact is because we have simply put more and more things and assets, so homes, uh, utility systems, schools, post offices, in the way of the hurricane, in the way um, of sea level rise. And so the, the cost and the human impact of flooding is just more grave. Okay. And Shanna, can you tell us about one of the things that seems to cause a lot of health impact with flooding is contaminated water, be that from a number of sources, from perhaps overflowed sewage to petroleum products, like with Harvey, I'm told, to organisms or what have you? Sure. I, you know, most deaths actually happen uh, because people are driving through water and their car gets flooded and they drown. So, you know, that gets to the common saying, turn around, don't drown. And so people really need to be thinking about that. But you bring up a really good point about the uh, chemicals and the toxicity of floodwaters. And this is because the flood is integrating with the landscape, right? And we've built a lot of things, as Laura has said. And in places like uh, Houston, it's uh, got a lot of petrochemical-type plants. So what we saw with Hurricane Harvey was a disaster when it comes to not only the flooding, but the toxicity of the floodwaters, because many of these these uh, plants were, had to be shut down. And when they shut down, they actually released a lot of air pollution in addition to having uh, toxicity into the waters. And so there were um, quite a bit of different chemicals that were um, registered. And uh, we have a way of doing that through a, a system called the Total Maximum Daily Load um, that measures different types of pollutants in our water. And what about various organisms that are floating around out there? I would hate to be walking around in water with some things I've seen or have known to be in there. Yeah, I think people, people really need to be, be careful. There is uh, bacteria in that water as well. Um, 
And that's due to a lot of things, like I said before, with, you know, septic and sewer systems not being able to handle that amount of water. You know, much of this infrastructure was built over 50 years ago. Take Washington, D.C., for example, it was more than 50 years ago. So, you know, these systems weren't built to withstand these future conditions that we're seeing due to the development and climate change. So with climate change, as I said, we're seeing more intense rainfall, higher rising seas, and then when we had storm surge, there's more water to, to be um, pushed further inland. So definitely bacteria is a, is a big concern as well. Indeed. And how would you stack it up, Shanna, in terms of the biggest danger of flooded communities? I think that it's, it's got to be comprehensive. We've got to look at it comprehensively. We're um, going to continue to be challenged, unfortunately, with the track we're on with our emissions uh, you know, targets right now. And so we're going to, the first step, you know, the nation can do and the world is reducing our emissions because if we can keep the increase in, in air temperatures down, that means we're going to have less challenges into the future. We really need to be thinking about that. But, you know, flooding is going to, you know, building on what Laura was saying, flooding really impacts every single part of the community that is being flooded. So, you know, there are ripple effects. You know, if people can't get to work, then they're going to be out of, you know, they may get unemployed and they may lose their job. And then, you know, there will be impacts on the tax base because, you know, they may not be bringing in, uh, the, the municipality may not bringing in as much tax base if businesses go out of business. And that happens quite a bit after floods. And then oftentimes you're seeing floods on top of flooding. So, you know, it's, you know, some places are hit, being hit and and Laura can talk about this year after year. So you can just imagine the ripple effect that goes through. And if, if you know, municipalities aren't able to pay off their bonds, then this is going to be a real big issue. So it's, it's a really um, comprehensive uh, problem, and it needs comprehensive solutions. Indeed. And so, Laura, what would you say are some of the long-term adverse health issues from being exposed to flooding and flood water? Well, um, one of the things that Shauna really raised was that impact, you know, you, you had raised sort of the, the impact to um, ecosystems from a flood, but the kind of other side of that actually is the impact to the ecosystem of trying to control the flood, right? So we have, we have sort of historically our way of dealing, our collective, the big O, uh, way of dealing with flooding has been to engineer it and control it. We have straightened uh, curvy rivers. We have put walls up, um, you mentioned in Miami, in Annapolis, right, to stop the water from coming um, into a community. And much of this along the coast and along rivers has led to um, a degradation of that sort of natural ecosystem that was there before, right? Think of all the um, organisms and all the plant life that you see when you're along sort of a natural flowing river. Much of that is destroyed when we do these sort of like hard engineering systems that are designed to control flooding, but not necessarily designed with sort of that entire ecosystem in place. And so what we need to see more of is what is called nature-based solutions, which is really letting nature do what it does best, which is absorb floodwaters, 
right? So we're sort of going back to a time when we had much less development, right? And trying to say, okay, should we um, buy out these homes, this community, for example, that has flooded over and over again, instead of rebuilding that home, should we buy it out, find, find a, a higher, drier place for these folks to live um, and restore that land back to open green space? Because it is like if a tree falls and nobody's there to hear it, right? If it floods and a, a wetland or an open green space floods, um, nobody's going to talk about it because there's no impact to human life. There's no cost to repair and rebuild. And so we need to see more of that so that as um, climate change does result in more frequent and more costly flooding, we're able to kind of bounce back from it more quickly and that nature can play a greater role than it currently is playing. Indeed. And we're going to go to break. But after the break, Laura, I want to talk some more about a couple of things that you said. So we'll be right back on the other side with these two ladies, too. We're really helping us understand this a lot more. We want to give a shout out now to our sponsors. That is Natural Awakenings, Dallas-Fort Worth Magazine, the Green, Healthy, and Sustainable Living Authority for the DFW Metroplex and North Texas communities. Print issues of Natural Awakenings can be found in all Whole Foods markets, natural grocers, central markets, sunflower shops, and many, many other locations, as well as available free for download online at nadallas.com. Our other sponsor is North Haven Gardens, serving the Metroplex since 1951, the most respected horticultural establishment in North Texas, offering gardening and plant education, concierge services, DYI classes, gifts, and more. And we're told the best Christmas trees in North Texas. Check them out at NHG.com. And our other sponsor is Lynn Dental Care, practicing dentistry for over 38 years with a holistic approach, non-mercury, looking at the whole body, specializing in periodontics. Dr. Lynn is board certified by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. Check them out at lynndentalcare.com. Welcome back to Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio, to today's show on extreme weather events, focusing on hurricanes, storms, tornadoes, and flooding. And we are back with Laura Lightbody with the Pew Charitable Trust and Shanna Yuvardi with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Again, thank you, ladies, for being with us. Before the break, Laura was talking to us about nature-based solutions, and I found that interesting in some of the things that you said, and I wanted to ask you, are there good examples out there who have done this? And then tell us a little bit more, too, about your work at the Pew Flood Prepared Communities Project. Sure. There are communities, you know, there are coastal communities, Galveston, Texas, Charleston, South Carolina, that have utilized a nature-based solution called living shorelines, which is essentially using um, native grasses um, to address erosion and sea level rise and to absorb some of that water as opposed to using what has traditionally been used, a bulkhead or a seawall, right, which is essentially a concrete structure to run along a property. So you see property owners in, in many coastal communities using this 
more and more as a way, as by the way, a more often cost-effective um, and more lasting um, sort of option. We saw some research after Hurricane Irene that impacted the Carolinas. There were two homes right next to each other, one that had a, a bulkhead and one that had a living shoreline, and the home that had a living shoreline on it had much less destruction. Um, much less flooding, and the only the only piece of debris on the property was actually a piece of the bulkhead from the neighboring house. Um, so we know that um, it's it's really being adopted in these coastal communities, and we need to see more of that. And that's one of the things that we're working on at the Pew Charitable Trust is finding solutions um, at the policy uh, level and at the planning level so that we can pay for more resiliency, uh, find solutions for communities to make them more prepared. So we're working with the federal government, we're working with states and communities on planning policy and finding ways to pay for more resiliency. Indeed. Now what I've seen too, and I've been told that climate change will probably result in more of the inland river and streams and tributaries flooding than we've been accustomed to. And indeed, we're seeing that. Was it last year, year before last, when like a lot of the Mississippi Delta and the communities upstream begin to flood? Right. You know, um, with climate change, what we've seen uh, with heavy rainfall since the 1950s is that in the Northeast in particular, they've seen uh, 50% more heavy rainfall events. And so we're going to continue to see these challenges of as Laura was saying this traditional infrastructure of dams and levees, you know, walling off rivers and seeing how that's, you know, it's really going to be, you know, a struggle to get these rivers to be able to handle that much water. And in the upper Missouri, Missouri River, we remember hearing about some of the flooding there, and that was a very complex issue of uh, multiple reservoirs and dams in addition to snowmelt. So, you know, these, these uh, flooding events can be very complex. But what Laura is mentioning is, is let nature do the work, right? And if you let nature do the work, you get multiple benefits. You get clean, cleaner water, you get habitat for wildlife, just to name a few benefits. Thank you for telling us that, Shannon. Now, I want to hear from both of you all, too, in terms of your experience. How does one properly prepare for these events, such as the storms, hurricanes, and tornadoes, looking primarily at the flooding that they bring? Right. Well, I, I always think of this as sort of there's individual preparedness as a homeowner or a renter and as a, as a as sort of a family unit. And then there's sort of a broader community preparedness, which is really comes down to elected officials and community development, right? And as an individual, there are things you can do to understand your risk. So if you're going to buy a home, you can ask about um, the flood risk of that property. Um, there are mitigation efforts that you can do in your home, such as elevating the utilities, for example, so that when a, a, a flood does come, uh, the utilities are sort of in higher ground and not impacted, right? So you don't lose power, you don't lose water supply. Um, you can carry flood insurance, which is really sort of that first line of financial defense when it comes to mitigation and um, preventing those long-term losses. And then that sort of larger community preparedness, right? We need elected officials. We need to the development community and city planners to really be thinking long-term and incorporating these climate impacts, sea level rise, more flooding into 
they're planning. So again, if we're going to grow and, and build new neighborhoods and, and build new shopping malls, um, and new schools, we really need to be doing it in a way that is, A, we're not putting them in harm's way, um, and B, in a way that is just longer lasting. So we have all this data now. We didn't have it 50 years ago, as we keep saying. Um, let's use that data about future risk so that we're making more resilient communities. I want to ask about what you may have noticed in FEMA's efforts and in their risk rating systems and in their precautionary methods as it relates to the storms and the floods. Sure. You know, I think FEMA, like a lot of federal programs, are are kind of coming to the understanding that we all are, which is we have a lot more data at our fingertips. We have industry data. We have, you know, a catastrophic modeling data. Um, and many of the kind of federal programs that really either support communities or sort of set the rules of the road for communities in terms of building and, and, and recovery after disasters were designed looking in the rear view mirror. And so FEMA, along with, you know, the housing department and the Department of Transportation, by the way, which just received a large infusion of money with the new infrastructure bill, um, it's trying to look forward instead of backward when it sets policy, right? Because its goal is to really use the taxpayer dollar um, in a lasting way. And so there are new programs. Um, FEMA has a new program called Building Resilient uh, in Infrastructure Communities. Its goal is to really do what we just said, really support that community scale um, development of homes and neighborhoods and planning, so it's done so in a sort of forward-looking way. The Department of Transportation just received billions of dollars under the, the new infrastructure bill to support resilient transportation. Um, that's, that's a first-ever investment that we've seen within the Transportation Department. A traditionally, you know, we think of transportation, we think of hard, gray infrastructure. So um, I do think there's a lot happening uh, with the federal government in terms of trying to really be that backstop and support for um, more climate prepared and resilient communities. Do either of you know of any communities, states, or cities that have gone so far as to prohibit building in some of the flood-prone areas, be they coastal or inland? There are um, a couple of communities that are doing it, a couple that come to mind, Fort Collins, Colorado, um, uh, a riverine community, Brevard, North Carolina, another riverine community that um, have made a very, you know, tough decision, right? Because you're often balancing economic interests um, with safety and preparedness. Um, to say we are putting restrictions, building restrictions along this riverway. Um, and, you know, at the time the mayor of Fort Collins did it, um, he did it because he really felt like his community was growing and he wanted to build his community to be a really resilient community. And that was the kind of hard stance that he took. Um, and they experienced a huge flood in 2013 and he never wanted to do that again, right? Um, so that's gonna it's gonna pay off in the long term for those communities, but it's it's rare. 
Indeed, and hopefully they can be the beacon or the example to make others go that way. We just have one more minute to go, and so, Shannon, I want to give you the last word in terms of what do you see that ordinary people can do in their everyday lives to help drive solutions to any of this? Critically important that people understand their risk and uh, that they, you know, ask their elected officials and government officials to make sure there is risk disclosure and that they're voting, and they're voting for things like ensuring that their local government, their state government, they're reducing emissions because ultimately that's going to be the first step to reducing these future impacts. Indeed. Thank you so much. You all have made us smarter about this issue, and we really appreciate your help in helping us to unpack it and understand it more today. We have been with Shanna Udvardi with the Union of Concerned Scientists and Laura Lightbody with the Pew Charitable Trust. Thank you, ladies. And thank you all, audience, for listening in today. The conversation starts here with Healthy Living, Healthy Planet Radio. But our goal is for to continue in your home, in your social circles, your workplaces, at the water cooler, and in the grocery checkout line so that we can all work together to realize that healthy living is simply not possible without a healthy planet. Our culture is a result of a trillion tiny acts taken by billions of people every day like yourself. And each of these can seem insignificant, but all of them add up one way or the other to the change that we each live through. This is your host, Bernice Butler. Thank you, and listen in again next week as we talk about extreme weather events, looking particularly at extreme cold weather. Thank you.